At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at Keely Companies. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Today's guest is an accomplished entertainment executive turned mental health advocate and number one national best-selling author. After a chaotic childhood, Tara Schuster hustled to appear glamorous and successful and well-adjusted, at least on paper. You see, she earned an Ivy League education and secured the role as vice president at Comedy Central. She had climbed the ladder. She had achieved success. She had it all, or so it seemed. When Tara lost her job, the one on which she had staked her entire adult identity, She found her harshest childhood traumas resurfacing as she battled severe depression amidst the isolating pandemic. Today, Tara is going to share her journey of reclaiming her agency by healing her deepest wounds and how you can shine too, even in the bleakest of circumstances, with actionable advice for taking charge of your emotional health. This conversation will help you find true resilience encouragement, and inspiration. Well, my friends, I encourage you right now to buckle up, grab your favorite Live Inspired journal and pen. You'll be wanting to take some notes for this one as I bring on my friend and soon to be yours. Her name is Tara Schuster. Tara, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I feel like I'm having coffee right now with a friend. I know your story. I've read your books, but for those who don't yet know you and may not know where you've worked, or what you've written, and you find yourself meeting them for the very first time, introduce yourself to them. So if you bumped into someone at a grocery store and they said, Tara, what do you do? How do you answer that? Well, today I would say something like, I'm a soul in a body trying my best. That would just be if you met me at the grocery store. (laughs) They they immediately push their cart quickly away from you. Yeah, they're like, okay, weirdo, bye. And I'm like, well, that's the truest thing I can think of. But what my books are about, what my work is about is I grew up in a mess wreck disaster childhood in a house where things came to die, the pets, the plants. It was a miracle. My sister and I survived it. You know, it was like physically dangerous. The house was an open construction site for five years. My parents were psychologically abusive and from everything from money stress, you know, we're doomed. We're never going to get out of this, but like, let's go on a vacation to Hawaii. But then the next minute, no, we can't afford to take you to the dentist. Just super boom and bust cycles that left me really confused. And I think my parents had it in their mind that the only thing that made you worthy was if you had money. 
And if you didn't have money, you were not a successful human, you know, much less mother or father. And I think my parents just didn't have the capacity to know how to take care of children or to, or how to learn how to take care of children. I don't think they had the curiosity either. That left me feeling utterly worthless. The message of my childhood is you are worthless. And I came to believe that because why else were the adults in my life treating me this way? Must be me, must be a problem with me. I hustled externally for my worth. You know, I was, you know, took five AP classes in high school, which got me to an Ivy League college, which got me to my first job ever was being an intern on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. And I just kept hustling and hustling and hustling. And because I was looking for validation from adults, I climbed really quickly, like really far up. So on the outside, it just looked like I had it all together because also I felt like such a weirdo that I wasn't going to tell anybody about this childhood. I was ashamed. I thought people would judge me, but those things deal with you. You know, just because I wasn't dealing with all that didn't mean it wasn't dealing with me. And how that manifested was I was the girl openly weeping next to you on the subway. I walked around the streets of Manhattan with anxiety talons in my temples where I was just repeating a distract to myself of you are worthless. You are ugly. You are unlovable. Nobody loves you. Nobody cares about you. And I really cannot overemphasize that that is all I heard in my head for about 25 years. Mm. There was never a moment of you're enough. You're good. You're loved. I'm proud. I, I, I could not think of something nice about myself. I might've kept going this way, externally hustling, you know, being good at work at home, being bad at life. Had I not drunk dialed my therapist on my 25th birthday, threatening to hurt myself. And now my therapist was a super chill, super calm European lady who wore a little kerchief around her neck and was always drinking, like I want to say chamomile tea, you know, from her, (laughs) from a cup. And I had never heard her this upset, you know, and the messages I got back from her, it was just, she was desperate to find me. And that's how I realized, oh no, I drunk dialed her and did this terrible thing. And so the next morning I just got real with myself. If I didn't do something to save my life, I would not have much more of a life to live. I was terrified. I didn't want to die. And so I figured I don't have parents. I don't have wise mentors. There's nobody I can go to for help. I got to help myself. I got to be my own parent. And because I was so good at work, you know, I did what any millennial would do at that time, which is I started a Google Doc. And in this Google Doc, I put all the questions I had. What are values? What are principles? What are vegetables? Like genuinely, what are they? Which one should I be eating? I still don't know. I feel like Instagram tells us one thing's a superfood one day and the next are like, it's toxic, stay away. But I digress. Um, (laughs) And so I, you know, I read memoir like it was self-help. Like I read the memoirs of Nora Ephron, Steve Martin, uh, Glennon Doyle, Cheryl Strayed to just take meaning from their lives and try to apply them in my own. And I would write in this Google doc, all my experiments with how these adults told me how to live. And after five years, I had a 600 page Google doc and I felt like a completely different person. I was stable, which 
I didn't even know stability existed. Like emotional stability, I did not know that was a thing, much less moments of contentment, moments of ease, not feeling 10 out of 10 anxious in my body. And so that was what my first book, By Yourself and Lilies, was all about, was basically you're allowed to treat yourself well. And in fact, treating yourself well is the way towards strength. And so I finished Lilies. Everything's great. I feel stable. And then it's the pandemic. Yay. The pandemic shows up. And immediately I am laid off from my job at Comedy Central, which was a major problem because I worked there one third of my life. It was my redeemer job. The way to say like, hold on, not only am I not a weirdo, I am dope. Look at this job. Like I've made it. And it was a magic trick because it was, it was diverting my own attention and everybody else's attention to this like shiny glittery thing over here, but don't look at a quarter century of complex trauma over here. And so it really spun me out. And I didn't know who I was. Who was I without Comedy Central? I mean, at that point, people were referring to me like Tara Schuster, Comedy Central, like it was my married last name. And so the question I had was, is there an essential me? Who am I if someone else isn't defining me? Who am I when I don't have these outward markers of success? Because I was single. I had no family living in Los Angeles. I had no job to give me status. I was stuck with me. And that's really what this next book is about is being stuck with yourself and having to go to the bottom of your soul to see what's really there so that you can find freedom. Because as I look back, Lily's is a book about reacting to trauma. It's all about reacting, playing emotional whack-a-mole, filling in all the holes. I didn't want that to just be my life. I don't want my life to be a series of me filling in holes. And so what Glow in the Effing Dark is about is reclaiming your most essential self, reclaiming your agency so that you can live the life that you most want in practical steps. Because I hate when a self-help book says something like, feel joy, let go. <laughs> like, cool, but like, what are steps How one do we through do five? It? Yeah, this is useless. So we're going to unpack the abridged version and go back a little bit and slow yeah. down a little bit. We become like the people who raise us so frequently, whether we even know it or not through omission and commission. Yeah. And you and I almost had like the anti-parent experience. Like I had incredible role models raised me and loved me and remind me that I belonged, that they adored me, that I was safe and that I had value. And the value was not based upon what I did, but who yeah. I was. You you had such a different childhood. And the fact that you rose from that to what you ultimately did in your life is stunning. But in a very real example, and you could pick from a million, choose one, share with us an example from your mom of, of how you didn't feel safe or how you didn't feel as loved or how you didn't feel as respected. And I think I'll share the example of the first time I ever realized safety was a thing. I didn't even realize that you could feel safe or that that was something that your parents were supposed to provide for you. I grew up in this, again, disastrous house, but not only was it physically dangerous, you know, I can remember one of the best days of my life was I was in a limo going to LAX to go to Manhattan. And I'm like, 
Yes, yes, yes. I'm somewhere around the age of five. I think I am the chicest person of all time to be in a limo. I'm like playing with the glasses. There's a cell phone. I'm rolling on the floor. And to top it all off, my mom had bought me this black faux fur coat. And I'm just like, wow, New York better watch out because I am so cool and I'm coming for you. And I just remember, I can picture how gleeful I felt in this moment. And my mom says, come over here, you know, sit next to me on on the back bench of the limo. And she starts showing me cards. And she says, do you know what these are? And I say, no. And she says, these are the cards for the prostitutes your dad's sleeping with. He doesn't love me and he doesn't love you. And I'm too young to fully process that. But what I remember is feeling an an immediate no, like an immediate like, huh, something's really wrong here. And so what I I do know is my dad does love me. So I say, no, 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 like dad loves me. I'm sure of it. And she says, oh, yeah, well, he wanted to abort you. I'm the only one who wanted you. I'm the only one who loves you. And I had really. Oh, I'm getting a little emotional here. Me too. Um, I, like it, I hated hearing that when I heard you share it the first time and then reading it and to have a human being experience that from her mother. It, it, it makes me want to climb into the limo and rip the mother out of it. Yeah. So I, like it just, it breaks my heart for all of you because obviously she's coming from a place of profound brokenness to even think that this somehow is a good idea to share that with her baby girl. Yeah. And that's what I know in retrospect, but basically I, for my own survival, just had to like bury that, bury that, bury, bury. I cannot think about this memory. I cannot think about what that means. I have to survive these parents that I have. That was my experience of childhood was not only was I just not safe at home. It was that my parents were exposing me to unsafe situations. And I didn't even realize how messed up that was until I was on a solo adventure and I, and I would go on solo trips all the time with like absolutely no regard for my safety. What, what, what age are you talking about? So this is like, I'm 32 or 33 at this particular one. But I, you know, before that I'd been to Brazil alone, Paris alone, Rome alone. I've been everywhere alone, <laughs> you know, and not checking in with anybody going on crazy hikes down slot canyons. Nobody knows. I don't have a safety kit. And my friends would always be like, wow, you're so courageous. And it never felt like that to me. It just felt like, well, duh, isn't this just what everyone does? And so I was camping alone in Zion, literally the first night I'm there. You know, I have my little camping grill, but I'm really not much of a camper. So the whole thing bursts into flames and I'm like, all right, well, you know what? It's going to be a takeout situation for this camping trip. I am not messing with this grill. And so I go into town and I'm sitting next to a family and it's a dad talking to his sons about what they're going to do the next day. And he says, you know, we're going to go canyoneering. I've never gone canyoneering before, but I've hired an expert who's done this hundreds of times. So even when you feel scared, you're going to be safe. Just Mm. remember this whole time, you're going to be safe. It was like the lid off my head exploded because it had just never occurred to me that parents ever 
made you feel safe, reassured you, or followed through with like actual tangible things they could do, like hire an expert or have some basic knowledge of of what they were exposing you to as. And so for me, just never feeling safe, always feeling like I was in danger in some way, that's not a great way to live. You know, I lived most of my life feeling fully anxious, hypervigilant, and never, ever, ever prioritizing my own safety. I'm, I'm going to share with you a quote and then have you unpack it for the rest of sure. us. You, you've shared in the past, when we don't feel safe, we are the tiniest little figurine in a Russian nesting doll, protected, but a prisoner at the heart of all the shells that we have built around ourselves. What do you mean by that? When you are not given a sense of safety, you start to build other things around you, right? Because the impulse is I've got to protect myself somehow. I've got to, I've got to do something for myself. But the issue is you become prisoner. So for me, what that looked like was I'm not actually safe. So I'm going to get an Ivy League education. I'm going to look good on paper. I'm going to get this great job. I'm going to act like a different person around other people, which just is many, many, many layers on top of who I actually am. So you end up really minimizing your life as a coping strategy for not having genuine safety. And I think a lot of people today, I mean, look outside the window. If you're feeling unsafe, I think everybody's sort of dealing with that to some extent. And then there are some of us where you add on just never feeling safe in your own body for so many different reasons, you know, whether it's the color of your skin, your sexual identity, if you've been through abuse, there're just a lot of us who would be a lot freer if we if we felt a basic sense of safety. You're 25, you you've done the Ivy League thing, you're climbing the corporate ladder, you're succeeding seemingly, your resume's brilliant, you're hanging out with the right crowd. And you're utterly hollowed out and broken and uh, addicted. And you are depressive and suicide ideation. You, you call your counselor. And it's not even until the morning when you get the voicemails from her calling you back that you recognize how, how far gone you are. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I didn't take myself seriously. No one valued me. So... I didn't learn to value myself. And the only thing I thought would bring me acceptance was all this external, you know, and talk about external validation. I was working in entertainment. I was working at Comedy Central or the job is to be like, look at me, I'm fancy. I talk to the right people. I'm in the right rooms where applause is like the currency ratings. So everything was tied to things I had no control over. And that's no way to live. I mean, if you tie your worth to anything other than yourself, if your sources of self-esteem are not unshakable and untakeawayable, that's a very dangerous position to put yourself in. And I didn't know any better. It's been like a 10-year journey, basically, to see, oh, right, external validation has not one time made me feel better. It has not one time made all the people I know feel better. So maybe it's time to jump off that hamster wheel because it just doesn't work. Yeah, when you jump, you got to know where you're going though. And so for you, yeah. before you you lapped, it seems like you started with a simple journal entry. 
you know, dear diary, page one, yeah, you yeah. start the Google doc. What a brilliant idea. It didn't seem like one probably at the time. It seemed like a, a last grass straw on a life, but you start journaling. What was the power you found in that? So I've always been a little picture person. Like I went to Brown and I, I only ever wanted to go to Brown. It was my dream to go to Brown, <laughs> but, but something like get into Brown was too big of an idea for me. Big things have always scared me. But if it's like, do well in AP history, do well on this one quiz, then I can do almost anything if I just break it down. And so with the journaling, it was a tool that someone suggested to me because they saw how out of control I was. I was so cynical. I was like, this. it was based off of this book that I highly recommend for any creative person. It's called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. Fabulous, really helped me out. And in it, one of the practices she teaches is the morning pages. Mm. And that's, you write three pages of freehand, just thoughts, like word vomit every morning, first thing when you get up. And the reason is because it forces you to pay attention to yourself. Because even though we inhabit ourselves every day, very few of us are actually paying attention to how do I actually feel? How am I walking in the world? Was today, today was I the person I wanted to be? If not, what could I do differently tomorrow? And so the journaling was uh, like jumper cables to who I actually was. And, you know, I thought it was going to be stupid and not work. I've now been journaling for what, I don't know, over a decade every day. Um, and, and the power of it is, you know, now I see it's my safe place. I can be fully myself there. Nobody is judging me. It's a physical location that I can hide and I can take care of. Every time I write in it, I'm insisting to the whole world that I matter, that my voice matters, that I have a story to tell. And over time, as you look back on your journal, you can just more quickly identify patterns and issues and therefore help yourself. You know, like I can go back and see, well, how did I actually feel on my 25th birthday? Hmm. Like that that whole quote unquote scene is yeah. in a journal. I, I don't need to guess it. what was that day like for me. It's just there, which is enormously also, it makes you feel proud to look back 10 years later and, and see how far you've gone. You yeah. had probably heard in an AP English class and then again at Brown and then again in some of the journals that you'd read from others, the power of journaling, but it wasn't until you turned 25 that you began. And probably yeah. every one of our listeners has heard your life has value. Yeah. Fill, fill, up, fill up those pages with things that are worthy of being done. And, you know, this idea of tracking life and yet very few of us actually do. Yeah. So for those of us who have never really taken seriously the idea of us beginning that journal give us some ideas on how we can begin doing so in earnest well first off i would say you do not have to believe in it nor think it's a good idea recognize that the whole world has said at some point to you you should journal and maybe even take it in your mind that you want to prove everybody wrong and that journaling sucks and is boring and is not going to get you anywhere start there start where i started like it's going to be useless and then i would say you know, in this next book, what I include in, in Glow in the Epping Dark is an emotion wheel, uh, which is basically it's a tool just to see how you feel, because I got to a point where my only emotions were good, bad, tired and busy. And I really didn't have any other way to explain my emotional state. Mm. 
but there's a lot of science behind simply labeling how you feel will make you feel better. That's not like a theoretical thing in behavioral science and psychology. They have found that this is a a very potent tool to help yourself understand yourself. And when you understand how you're feeling, you have an option to choose a different reaction, right? So if you realize, oh, I'm not uh, anxious, I'm furious at my boyfriend, okay, then you don't need to spend all day anxious at home spinning wild stories. You need to go talk to your boyfriend. You need to do something to change the situation. And so I would just start with a very simple practice of how do I feel today? How do, how do I feel in my body? Just any kind of awareness. And you don't need my book. I mean, you could just Google emotion wheel. There are lots of them out there. Maya and I try to use uh, more relatable language because uh, I try to be helpful that way. But like, truly, just start paying attention to how you feel and make a commitment. You know, people say they want to change. Few do. Because if you actually wanted to change, you would make a commitment to yourself and you would hold yourself accountable. And yeah, I know it's hard, but there are much harder things to do than starting a journaling practice. So that's why I actually don't think it's a bad thing if you're cynical about it and just want to prove people wrong. Great. More power to you. You know, prove them wrong. I've been utilizing this struggle of journaling for about a decade and it is Mm. so healing. Yeah. Brings so much joy and so much clarity, not only to your past, but to your future. Totally. So you, you said, you know, it's really hard. It's really hard. It is really hard. The only thing harder than that is what you talk about next, which is meditating. So yeah. I'm going to share a quote with you on meditating because everybody knows the power of prayer, reflecting, yeah. meditating, breath work, and all of us are too busy to do it. So here comes a quote from you. I was so fixated on achieving some level of perfection that I was missing out on one of the greatest gifts of meditation quiet time by myself. Talk about the power and the practice of meditation. Yeah. So I was very cynical about meditation. It sounded so woo-woo and stupid and bad. And every time I tried initially, I would just spiral into anxiety. Like I would just start thinking about, oh, my laundry, I need to go to the grocery store. Why did so-and-so do X, Y, Z to me? Like I never had a meditative moment at all as I initially tried. So I had never had a meditative moment, yet I would read from all these people I admired that there was a value to meditation. You know, I've just been on so many ill-fated meditation retreats where I just drove myself insane. I detail one in particular where I like to go hard at healing, you know, like if I'm going to heal, I'm really going to heal. I'm going to try everything and add a 10 And so I heard about this online meditation retreat where I could go get my own cabin, but do it all online because it was in COVID. And I decided that because I was really going to win this meditation (laughs) retreat, that I was all of a sudden going to become a vegetarian. Nobody said I needed to do that. I was going to totally isolate myself and speak to no one in the most isolated time ever on planet Earth. I made all these rules for myself and I was really punishing myself into meditation. And by the end of the retreat, I was just a total wreck, just like an absolute disaster. And at one point I was like 
delusional and thought I was hearing the voice of God. And then I was so proud of myself. And I, this was a Jewish meditation retreat. So I go to the rabbi and I'm like, oh my God, like I, I just had this moment with God and I guess I'm doing this right. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, hold on. You seem really overwhelmed. I mean, I'm sobbing and heaving. He's like, you're seeming really overwhelmed. Can we talk about that? And I'm like, why? Why? What? What? I'm always overwhelmed. That has nothing to do with this. Like God. Like we should talk about God right now. And he's like, okay, sure, yes, we'll get to that. And you seem really just underwater. Can we ground you a little bit? And what I kind of realized, he so he brought me through a grounding practice. And what it made me realize was we cannot overwhelm our way through healing. You, you can't hate yourself into healing. It's actually only through the inverse of what we are typically served. You know, people are harsh with us. It's a harsh world. Yeah. We have unrealistic expectations of what each of us can or should do. Ha using that to get to health just can't work because that's how we got in these unhealthy states to begin with. And so what I realized through meditating was simply overwhelming myself through it wasn't going to help. And that actually I didn't need to, all I really needed to do was get comfortable sitting, comfortable hearing my emotions, comfortable being okay that they existed. Because as you get okay with them existing, you build space in yourself. You're basically mm -hmm. just building more and more and more space so that one thing doesn't overrun you. When I hear people complain about meditation, they say, well, my mind can never be still or clear. Like I can't let go. Like nobody can let go unless they're dead. Like a central part of meditation is getting lost because when you get lost, you notice, ah, oh, man, I just got lost. Let me gently come back to focusing. I mean, that's part of the practice. And I I think it's a real shame that people use language that's overly complicated or sounds impossible, like let go, because that is pretty impossible. And at a minimum, if none of this works for you and you're like, ah, I still don't want to meditate, pretend that you're meditating and take 20 minutes to yourself. Tell everybody else, hey, I got to go in the other room and meditate and just be with you. Just take some quiet time because we definitely don't have enough of that in our lives. I have a friend who works in an organization corporately and uh, does this practice. And he's always embarrassed when people come into the office and they're like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, nothing. I, I was just at work it. And because so rare in life, do we take the time to just pause and reflect and meditate and just get lost in our thoughts? It's a healthy practice. Yeah. You, you asked us about a practice that we want to get rid of. I think you asked through your social media stream, what is it about yourself you like least? Or what do you wish you could get rid of? Yeah. What what surprised you most in people's responses to that question? Oh man. First off, just having an Instagram account now and, and being at all public about this stuff, I am shocked by the level of suffering, the level of sadness, the level of people who feel totally alone, isolated, and like nobody understands them. And the biggest thing that struck out stuck out to me was that people felt like they were not enough. They were not enough of a mother. They were not enough of a father, provider, daughter at work, whatever it was, they were not enough. Um, 
And I ask this question because what I've come to realize is again, rejecting ourselves gets us nowhere. So even that question, what would I want to get rid of my of in myself sets you up for disaster because it's actually not possible to punish yourself into healing either. It's, you know, through the practice of self-acceptance and self-compassion that we grow stronger and that we get more in tune with ourselves. And those things sound impossible. You know, self-compassion to me sounds like something cheesy written on the side of a yoga studio that I would have no access to feeling self-compassion, except there are real tools you can use. And I take people through um, a self-compassion practice in the book based off of uh, a form of therapy called internal family systems, which was created by Dr. Richard Schwartz. And basically it says, all of us have different parts inside of us. And you know this to be true. If you've ever said, well, on the one hand, I feel this way. And on the other hand, I feel this way. Part of me feels this way, but part of me feels this way. We have separate little parts of us who all have different feelings, different opinions, and all of them are out for our good. So that's the first thing is like all of them want us to do well. So even that anxious part of you that won't, you know, for me, I'll talk about late last night, woke up in the middle of the night, total anxiety about a bunch of stuff I had to do for this book's release. In the moment, I hate that. I'm like, God, anxiety, go away. Why are you doing this to me yet again? Pause. Wow, my anxiety is looking out for me. My anxiety really wants me to do well, is trying to help me. And maybe I can help my anxiety calm down a little because if we go with her plan, I'm going to feel too much pressure. This isn't sustainable. So how can I comfort my anxiety? And whenever I can do that, instead of rejecting Mm. something and thinking it's purely bad, when I can do that and sit with it and recognize it's good and how much it hurts, like my anxiety, it hurts. It's hurting itself. It is not pleasant to live in that space. And I know that, you know, so I can feel for my anxiety and want to help it. And that is actually the definition of self-compassion is feeling something with someone else and then being moved to help relieve it. So when we can just feel, oh, sweetheart, my loneliness, my anxiety, my depression, how are you trying to help me? And wow, thank you. I'm so sorry for how much you're hurting. I'm sorry for how I'm hurting. How can, how can I help? That's how we get to self-compassion, not by rejecting any parts of ourselves. Well, man, there's a lot there. So part of it is embracing fully who we are and in our brokenness. And one of your struggles is the fear of abandonment. Yeah. The the fear of that limousine pulling over and not only hearing what your mother said, but ultimately having her kick you out the door and say, I'm done done with you too. That is showing up in just about every aspect of your life, including dating. Yeah. The, the little girl eventually sought love in all the wrong places and probably frequently <laughs> from all the wrong guys. And yeah. you shared the quote that I just think is so beautiful and painful. And here it is. My goal is not to find love. You finally recognized it's to not be abandoned. Yeah. Talk about that. The, the goal wasn't to find love. It was to not be abandoned. Yeah. I mean, after making 
many, many, many mistakes. Like I, I found myself, I was always in a relationship, but always in a relationship where I knew it was doomed from the outset and that I would be the one to leave before I was left. After doing a lot of therapy, I, I was dating this guy who basically, I call him the Great Gatsby IRL. He was just like a magnate with a transatlantic accent. It was like, uh, seemed like a 1940s film character meets LA dude who, you know, quote unquote, was a millionaire who was always like impressing me with like big dinners where he'd order everything on the menu. And if I'm honest about why I liked him, it was because he was obsessed with me. You know, he was constantly complimenting me, constantly taking me out, constantly telling me how beautiful I was and how he wanted to have kids with me. But that had an edge, which was, I didn't want to be told from the third date how much he wanted to have kids with me like that. You know, that was like too much, like a little too aggressive. And then things just got weirder. So his one of his big personality traits was he's a millionaire. Then his car broke down and he calls me and he's like, listen, honey, I'm in a tight spot. I need to borrow twelve hundred dollars. Can can you help me out? And I'm like, we've been dating a few months. I. First off, I would never be in a position where I'm asking the new person I'm dating to help me with money. That's, I got about 10 other friends I would go to before I go to you. Uh, but I said, you know, okay, sure. And it was just more and more of these just like weird, yeah. like I felt uh, off kilter all the time around him. And when we finally broke up, I realized I am the common denominator in all of these relationships. This There's something that's really on me. And so I took a year off of dating. I did a lot of therapy. I spent a lot more time dating myself um, in order to try to escape this need for somebody else to validate me, to make me feel good. Because I would accept really unacceptable circumstances if only this person would compliment me. Because what I was looking for, yeah, it wasn't the beautiful feeling of a fulfilling relationship and love. It was for that person not to leave mm. so that I was not abandoned. It, it took a long time to realize that. But, you know, now I'm dating again. I have a matchmaker, actually, because at least let's trust somebody else's taste, you know? <laughs> Not your own. We've learned <laughs> no, that lesson. Ah, I have terrible taste, so ready the for somebody year, else. The year you dated yourself, what did you love most about her? Yeah, I wasn't stressed out. I never, I, I get so anxious in relationships with men because I'm so scared of being left. So I'll do anything to fix the relationship. I'll be whoever they want to be. And then eventually that will be too difficult and that will be why I will leave. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I'm actually never intimate with anybody because I'm picking someone it's impossible to be intimate with. You know, it's it's one of those funny things where if what you're afraid of is an abandonment and that's like top of mind, you will get Tums. yourself. Yeah, Correct. that's just. It's the thing what, you attract. Exactly. And so I just didn't feel anxious or worried ever. I felt really good. I felt like, I wasn't seeking anybody's approval. I wasn't scared someone was going to leave me. I didn't have to walk on eggshells around their weird behavior because trust me, when that's the kind of person you're seeking out, 
they're pretty weird. Like there's going <laughs> to be some, which is not to say I'm not weird. Look, I'm the one doing this. I fully understand my responsibility and all this. And I take 100% ownership. Um, but just having the relief of not being that scared all the time was so beautiful. So part of what you're talking about is, is loving yourself with the lights on and loving, yeah. loving that person fully. I'm curious though, as you look a little bit even closer to the mirror, it seems like part of the issue was you struggled a lot with truly loving yourself and the way you looked even externally. For yeah. those of us who have challenges loving how we present physically, and by the way, that is every one of our listeners, whether they want to admit it or not, most of yeah. us struggle with body image. Yeah. What has been helpful for you as you look in the mirror imperfectly, but try to love that person staring back at you? I had pretty extreme body image issues growing up, it wasn't even just all the dangerous things I was exposed to. I was just always told my body was wrong. I was subject to these very invasive investigations of my body, which felt super violating. Department of Family Services? Like this is- Yeah, the they, they, so they would always be coming to like check in on me, but because we lived in a fancy neighborhood and my mom was a doctor and my dad was a lawyer- Nobody ever they just thought, oh, they're probably fine. But I actually wasn't fine. Um, and my body was not in my control. And so I ended up just feeling very ashamed of myself. And I would work on it. And in my first book, I talk about one of my tricks towards helping myself was whenever I feel really down on something, I try to honor it. I talk about buying fancy bras in the first book is like, I don't like, I don't like how this looks. I have a matronly bosom. I don't like this. So instead of me doubling down in hatred and hiding my body and just like treating myself like I deserve less, actually what really helped was to buy fancy bras that really honored myself or my teeth are kind of crooked. So sometimes I buy really nice lipsticks where I'm just like, oh yeah, sweetie, like, we got this, you know, it's about not feeling so ashamed. And so mm. how, how I counter that is by honoring that part of myself. And in this next book, I'm on a whole new level, which is during the pandemic, I decided I want abs. I want Britney Spears, 2000s, slave for you, snake around my neck, abs, just for like two minutes. I just want those abs. And I hired a trainer on Zoom, mostly because he was super hot. And I was like, this pandemic sucks. <laughs> like, At least can this hot shirtless man be on Zoom with me a couple of times a week? And I told him what I wanted to do. I wanted abs. He came up with a whole plan. So I was working out maybe an hour and a half every day. I was tracking all my macros and which is, you know, the carbs, the fat, uh, protein you eat. It's a very restrictive. I was on a very restrictive diet, particularly for how much I was working out. And I would wake up at two in the morning dreaming of bread. <laughs> I, I would go to the refrigerator, look in, be like, I really need to eat something. But no, my abs. I was miserable. I was like, I didn't even want to be with me. I can't imagine how I was with anybody else, you know, and mm. I still couldn't get these abs no matter what I did. So I said to the trainer, you know, what's the deal? I'm, I'm doing everything in my power. Why no abs? And he said, 
oh, actually for women, it's very difficult because you, your body wants to protect your reproductive organs. So to really have abs like that, pretty impossible for a woman. So I was like, cool. I'm glad you're telling me this now, as opposed to, you know, three months ago when we began this journey. But after that all happened, what I realized was just, I'm tired of wanting my body to be different. I also don't love all these terms, body positivity, body neutrality. Just stop talking about my body. I don't want anybody else's opinion about my body other than my own. And my opinion is I'm so grateful I woke up this morning. Mm. Wow. I'm grateful for my lungs. I'm grateful for this tummy. I'm grateful it's all working because man, would that be terrible if it didn't? And and so that's now more and more and more how I train myself into loving myself is just when I'm like, oh man, my arms, like I would much prefer they be closer to Michelle Obama's. I can hold them and say like, thank you arms. You can do a few pushups. That's amazing. You got me out of bed today. You know, you helped me type. Like I really try to take a moment and be grateful for what I do have. We, we have seven questions that tether all of our guests together at the end of our programs called the Live Inspired Seven. Great. So we're about to run the gauntlet together. So get your shoes on, get the guy with the abs uh, in your corner yeah. again, because we're going to be running with him on this one okay. before we do there. For those right now who woke up this morning and they don't love what they see, they don't love how they feel, they don't love the past stories that make them who they are today, what, what's your one bit of advice that they need to do in order to take the next right step forward in their journey? Well, I would remind them of a scientific fact. This is not me writing like a little slogan on a stone that they sell in a yoga studio. Each one of us is made of stardust, not theoretical. The carbon in your muscles, the iron in your blood, they came from stars and they make us up. So one thing I find very soothing is nobody ever looks at the stars and is like, they have so many moral failings and why didn't they get their to-do list yet? And they're not enough, right? Our general opinion of stars are, wow, pretty awesome. I've yet to meet a person who doesn't like stars. (laughs) So I find this incredibly powerful because it's a truth, a truth I can't deny, a truth that just is science, that inside of me, in my innermost core, I am made of stars and stars are pretty cool. And every time I can think about that, and I really even visualize it, like I can think of like all this stardust making up my innermost self. I can kind of gain a little perspective and be like, wait, maybe I'm not the giant loser I think I am if I have this otherworldly, unbelievably magnificent, magical stardust within me. Mm. And that always brings me back because if I can hang on to something that actually really is true, that I can't outthink, then I can always come back to, wow, I'm kind of cool. And a kind of cool basis is a great way to build. That's a, a powerful base level. Tara Schuster, you are pretty cool. So let's run together through these seven questions. Question number one is what's been the most impactful or the most influential book? I know you're extremely well read that you've ever read. I'm going to say The Artist's Way, which is even more of a workbook and a self-help book, which I actually have not read that many self-help books. 
But this one, if you're a creative person who was told that you were not allowed to be creative or it wasn't encouraged in you, this is just takes a jackhammer to those beliefs. And it's it's a 12-step program on paper towards unlocking your creativity. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I think I laughed a lot more when I was a kid. And that's definitely something I'm actively working on, which is ironic given the fact that I worked at Comedy Central for almost 12 years. And but some I of think, the darkest people work in comedy though. Yeah, no, it's true. But I think I just got, it became such a part of my job that I noticed myself saying that's funny instead of laughing. Yeah. And I'm really trying to untrain that. Yeah. And so that, you know, that means watching comedies instead of a Bernie Madoff documentary late at night. If your home caught fire and all living things are out, but you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item, something that really mattered to you, what would you grab? My Chanel bag. I worked at the end of Lily's. I had worked so hard in being a, the kind of person who could treat herself well at all. And I had saved all this money for a Chanel bag because for me, that was the amulet of somebody who cared about themselves, of somebody who had made it. And, and well beyond when I had the money for it, I would still be like, I'm not worth this. I can't get it. If I get it, it means I'm like this terrible, uh, gluttonous person who doesn't deserve anything. And then I'll like get struck down by God. But all these weird stories in my head about just buying something that was nice and no big deal and that I could have actually afford because I had saved for it. And so that bag I now never use because it's too nice. So it sits in a cloth, uh, never to be used. But that's the that's what I would take with me because of the symbolism. Uh, and, and then I just don't have many pictures. Pictures would be what I would say if I had them, but I don't. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone, living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? Easy answer, Nora Ephron. Why Nora? She, uh, she is just, she was such a fabulous writer. She's my North Star of writing. Honest, but funny. Warm, but not really. Like not sentimental, not maudlin. <laughs> and in her time, there were not multi-hyphenates. There were not people who were writing for the post and then writing a novel and then writing a movie. And she was like, guess what? I don't care. This is what I'm doing. And so she's just such a smart trailblazer that I I would want to know everything about her. I would I just have so many questions for her. What's the best advice, Nora or Annie Dillard, who you quote a bunch, or a whole lot of other folks who've influenced you positively ever gave you? So the best advice you've ever received is? From my playwriting teacher, Paula Vogel, who's also a Pulitzer Prize winning, just a fabulous artist. And when I was in college writing my weird plays, I came to her and I was a mess and I'll never forget it. We sat in the theater in little folding chairs and she said, you need to take yourself seriously. And it even took me a couple of years to realize that you're worthwhile right. and you are worth taking seriously and you are worth making choices in the direction of your dreams or the direction of being the most you that you can possibly be because we all say, and we all know 
we don't live forever. We all know that, right? How many of us believe that? How many of us actually on a daily basis are like, wait, my time is limited. Am I spending it how I want to spend it? You may have already answered it, but here we go. What advice would you give yourself at age 20? Chill out. (laughs) And I don't know that my 20-year-old self could have heard anything I have to say. I, I, I don't know. And I think people, they hear what they need to hear at the right moment. Sarah Schuster, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? Hmm. I think it's something like she made people feel seen and comfortable in her presence. Because I didn't feel that way. And one of the things I've noticed is you're invited to give the things you never got. And when you take that step, you actually make sure they're a part of your life mm. because you're you're cultivating them, even if it's in, it's in the direction for others, right? But it's in you. And so that's that's what I would like to be said about me. Well, I actually think it's extremely hard to give what you've never received. And the fact that you are shining a light and reminding us that we can glow in the darkness as well is a powerful thing when you weren't taught that as a little one, Uh, but you're teaching it today. So, So thank you for your work and your words and your time with us on our podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. So delightful and such good questions. I really appreciate it. I love how Tara described herself during our conversation as a little picture person. So yeah, she would have these massive dreams like maybe making it into the Ivy League school, Brown University, or working at a huge network, Comedy Central. But she would also identify the little steps that ultimately would allow her to achieve the larger goals. My friends, whether it's a goal for you of daily journaling, like Tara shared, or decluttering your house, like I probably ought to be doing right now, learning a new language, or developing healthier habits for you and your family, breaking these seemingly massive, lofty goals into smaller, more manageable tasks has been proven to be wildly successful. So yeah, have the ambitious goal, but then break it down to the little pieces and then do something really wild. You ready for it? Focus on your most important, stay within your circle, and then take your next right step forward. Watch what happens when you do that daily. My friends, if you enjoyed how Tara overcame an unconventional childhood, you'll love my conversation with Bonnie Gray. Growing up as the Chinese-American daughter of a mail-order bride and a busboy in San Francisco's Chinatown, Bonnie's childhood was far from idyllic or ordinary. But this conversation is a reminder that in boldly owning, embracing, and celebrating our stories, our past, our life, We are gifted the chance to live authentically and breathe life and possibility, not only into our life, which is awesome, but into others, which is the calling. If you want to check out the Bonnie Gray interview, listen to it right now at episode 412 or cruise with me right now over to the Live Inspired podcast channel. You can find that at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. We'll have a link for the Bonnie Gray episode 412 right there. I want to thank you, as I always do, for being part of our Live Inspire community. I want to thank you for believing, like I do, that the foundation is firm, your life matters, and that the best is yet to come. 
So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired, family. Live inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at Keeley Companies.com.